Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives today, 21st of May 2023. Today we're going to be hearing about the book Speaking Freely by Julia Penelope, discussed by Julia Long. So welcome everybody and um, welcome Julia and over to you. Thanks very much, Joe. Good morning, everybody, or good evening or good afternoon, wherever it is where you are. Um, it's an absolutely glorious May morning here. So, um, and I'm going to be speaking about um, this book, uh, Speaking Freely, Unlearning the Lies of the Father's Tongue by Julia Penelope, which is an absolutely brilliant book. So I'm really, um, I'm really pleased to have this chance to, uh, to talk about it with you. Um, uh, this book and Julia Penelope herself, um, I think isn't, uh, I think they're not possibly not as, as well known as, as they might be. Um, not, not many of us, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see in, in the chat. <clears throat> not, not many of us have, have read this book, certainly as, um, you know, uh, compared to some of the other, um, radical feminist texts of that time that we've um, that we've read so I really really hope that I can do a reasonable job of trying to convey just why I am so enthusiastic about it I think it's it's a it's an absolutely brilliant um brilliant uh, piece of scholarship and it is so relevant um to today's uh, issues of um of women's speech and all the kind of uh, discussion around that. So I'm going to just begin with a little bit of biographical detail about um, Julia Penelope. If Joe or whoever's doing the slides, if we could just have the first slide, please. Um, so uh, those books there are just that was just a quick uh, picture that I took of the the books either by um, Julia or edited by her that or co-edited by her that that I happen to have but um, but she was very prolific she wrote I think about a dozen books or wrote or co-edited or edited about a dozen books as well as numerous um, she gave uh, numerous papers uh, during the 80s and 90s she was she was really prolific um I think probably the bulk of her writing was was during the 1990s and she published her her last book in 1998 um very sadly she died 10 years ago now in 2013 um she was only 71 and I think that by the I think she'd already died by the by the time I heard about this book. I hadn't heard of her at the at the time that um that she wrote the book. And by the time I heard I heard of it, which actually was around 2013, um, I think sadly she she had already died. So it's an absolutely massive loss to us. And I really, really regret um that I never had the chance to hear her speak or, you know, actually to meet her. I would have loved to have heard her speak. Um, I can't find any, any um, if anyone can find any uh, videos or recordings of her speaking, I would absolutely love to, to hear that. I couldn't find any myself on YouTube. I guess she, when she, at the time she was working, it was really before all the area, you know, now things, everything gets recorded as a, as a matter of course, but um, 
but as I say, she was um, she was uh, working and writing at a time sort of really before that that became very uh, very commonplace. Um, so uh, um, what I found found out about her, she does write quite um, autobiographically in in some of her work. For example, in this wonderful book, Call Me Lesbian, she speaks quite a lot about. Um, about her life and about her early life and her sort of changing uh, thinking and analysis and politics. Um, so some of some of the information I got about her, I've gleaned from her own writing. They're really I couldn't find very much on online. There are a few really fascinating obituaries about her. Um, if it comes under some publication called the Windy City, the Windy City Times, I think it is. There's a collection of obituaries about her there. So if you Google her name and obituary, you'll um, uh, um, you'll find those. But anyway, so just to to get on with it, Julia Penelope um, was a lesbian feminist separatist, um, born in 1941. Um, she was originally known as Julia Penelope Stanley, and then I'm not sure exactly at what point she dropped the Stanley. I think we can. Um, understand the the likely reasons why she did that she was extremely active as um as a lesbian uh, feminist and lesbian separatist activist she was a co-founder of the lesbian herstory archives and in terms of her academic life she was um a professor of linguistics for um for a long time um I think she worked in a couple of universities in America, the University of Nebraska, I think was one, where she worked for quite a long time. And she um, referred to herself as a cunning linguist. Um, she was, uh, in, in terms of those obituaries, um, she was repeatedly um, described as very funny, hilarious, and having um, a huge laugh uh, that would just go on and on. And um, so she just sounds, such a fantastic, um, such a fantastic woman and lesbian and uh, separatist, really, um, really uh, amazing kind of big, big uh, character. Um, as I was saying, she was very prolific, but some other fascinating things that I found that I found about, I'm just trying to scroll down a little bit, um, was one of the things I love about her is that she was an avid gardener and she created a number of gardens. She was very skillful and knowledgeable. And she also was a great, um, she had a great passion for geology and rocks. And she um, she would give these uh, slideshows of, of a, a various rock collection, which apparently um, were, she would give these slideshows in darkened rooms of these, of these rather, um, smooth and uh, voluptuous shaped rocks of all different kind of pink and red hues, um, elicit, um, eliciting great, um, great appreciative uh, sighs and uh, exclamations from, from the women who would attend these, uh, these slideshows. So all in all, she sounds, um, she sounds a pretty wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, so um, a little bit of biographical detail that I've gleaned. Um, in one of her early uh, collections, The Coming Out Stories, she describes herself as a white working class fat butch who never passed. Um, now, she later 
very much disavowed this term butch and she um in the call me lesbian collection she talks about um why she uh re stopped using that term and, and rejected terms butch femme masculine and feminities she sees them all as products of patriarchal thinking as you know i think um when we start talking about the speaking freely i think that will become quite clear that uh, she sees exactly where those terms um are coming from but anyway to go back to her biography she came out to her family at a young age uh, starting what she referred to as her uh, rabble rousing um in keeping with this rabble rousing and the very you know a very hostile anti-lesbian um environment she was living in she the first two colleges she was attending she was kicked out she was kicked out of um florida state university and the university of miami she was kicked out first of all it was definitely um for being lesbian and there's um a little bit of differences of versions online as to why she um she was also kicked out of the university of miami either for being lesbian or actually um for have for having men in her room at the college was one of the um was one of the reasons given anyway i don't know about that and i should also say that she's the very the only recording that i've seen of her was when she features in the film lesbiana by miriam uh fougere that wonderful film about um uh lesbian separatism and she does speak in that in her interview in that about a brief early period in her life where she refers to herself as a kept butch, um, which has been interpreted as um, as being uh, kept by uh, the earnings, the income of a woman exploited in prostitution. So rather um, rather distressing information. But I think she was open in speaking about that, and we shouldn't um, yeah we, sh we shouldn't delete that as, as part of the history. Um, Anyway, uh, she, um, in terms of her academic career, as I hope I will convey, she was a um, a scholar of really some brilliance and great scholarship, but she was repeatedly passed over in her academic job for um, for promotion because of the nature of her work, which was no doubt seen by the patriarchal men with power in her. Um, in her institution as being a kind of you know a narrow or insignificant area of interest but also um so that's i think fairly predictable but also very disturbingly and distressingly she experienced um a, well i don't really know the ins and outs of it but um what what was said in terms of her lesbian feminist activism that she became tired of the in uh, um, term infighting and ultimately as i said she wrote her last book in 1998 and then after that she um she left her academic job and she seems to have left um the whole area of um, lesbian feminist activism and uh took a commercial job for a mainstream um a job with a sort of commercial mainstream publisher and was working um was working in that area um uh, i think until the time of her death but i really couldn't find any more information about that so a really really interesting woman and um yeah i would love to have heard more 
you know, you know of, of her own account of especially of those later years of her of her life. Um, could I have the next slide, please? So I you might have noticed those of you who've read the book that in that um, in that brief account there of Julia Penelope's life, I used some uh, grammatical phrasing that is very much the kind of thing that she herself is very critical of in, in this book that I'm gonna be talking about in, in speaking freely. And I use them quite deliberately. These, these were phrases that either she'd used herself or that I'd seen other people, um, uh, other women use about her. And I thought, let's have a look at the phrases we've just used and the way that they work in the story that I was given, the account that I was giving of her life, because they reveal some very important features that she exposes herself in her um, book, Speaking Freely. So um, those phrases are, was kicked out of, I said she was kicked out of a couple of universities. Um, also, I use the phrase kept butch, and I also use the term infighting. So if we look at each of those in turn, we'll see what is obscured by each of those phrases and how each of those phrases function as part of what Julia Penelope calls the patriarchal universe of discourse. They are um, uh, quite typical features of patriarchal language in that they obscure power relations, they obscure the, um, the straightforward facts of a situation and they help to um, uh, obscure responsibility and agency for particular um, for particular actions. So when we talk about um, uh, when I talked about uh, her being kicked out of those institutions, that's an example of using the passive voice. So instead of saying the University of Miami or where it was, wherever it was, Florida State University, um, the male authorities of that university expelled her or kicked her out. I said she was kicked out of. So that um, puts it into the passive voice. It makes her the main topic of the sentence. She was kicked out and it obscures who actually took those decisions, who actually was responsible for her expulsion that university it um it takes the emphasis away from them and it actually deletes them altogether by just talking about her rather than saying she was kicked out by whoever it was um so also in terms of this phrase the kept butch that is a very um uh that is a that is a phrase that really clouds all the kind of um uh, power dynamics and economic relationships at the heart of that, doesn't it? Because it says she, it's putting her in the topic position and saying that she was a kept book. It makes it all about her particular identity. And that word kept hides all of the, um, what's actually going on. So who, for a start, who was keeping her? In what manner was she being kept? And where was where was that? Obviously, she was kept in an economic sense, maybe in other senses too, but primarily, I would say, an economic sense. But we are left to interpret this for ourselves. 
and she was being kept by another woman who in turn was prostituted by men. But again, we've got with that term prostituted, we've got the passive voice there. So those men who are the active agents in this, who are actively um, prostituting, actually serially raping a woman for, um, uh, and then as, as part of a um, commercial uh, arrangement, um, those men are out of the picture altogether. And in fact, the woman is even out of the, the picture altogether. And we just have this phrase, a kept butch. And then finally, um, is this making sense? I'd just, <laughs> I'd just like to see a bit of feedback in the chat if, um, if, uh, if, this is, if this is useful. Okay, thank you. Because, I, because I've been thinking about this so much myself and I know some of the terms are a little bit technical, but I just think her analysis is so important. And then this phrase, I wanted to sig uh, single out this phrase where, where um, she was described as being tired of the infighting. Because again, this what we have in terms of this word infighting is the, is the deletion of agency. And it, it, um, kind of even, uh, even more, I think, than... Uh, then I've tried to put them in a sort of order of how obscuring these terms are. So was kicked out of, there's some element of, we kind of know who kicked her out. Kept Butch is, becomes more obscure. And then this infighting, what is totally obscured in that very vague uh, term is who was doing what to whom, who took what actions, who said what, what effect did it have? How did someone else respond? All the kind of power dynamics, um, all the politics of it is completely obscured. And we just have this very, very vague term. And what uh, that's actually called a passive nominal. Nominal. I know maybe not everyone is such a fan of, of uh, linguistics or sociolinguistics as I am, but some people may find these terms a bit dry. I actually find them so satisfying because I love the way they um, absolutely give us a language to pinpoint exactly what is going on. So we have this really, um, I think, this very useful term, the passive nominal. Nominal is when you make um, make something into a noun, yeah, because not nome from name. So we've got what is usually a verb to fight becomes a noun uh, or it, it's, it functions as a noun. It becomes this vague thing in fighting, which is um, this noun with no agent, no active subject, no recipient, just this vague thing of infighting. And isn't this so familiar to us? This is why I picked out this word. Because this is a word that I see over and over again in terms of the feminist or political uh, communities, um, familiar on social media, that I see women endlessly bemoaning the infighting. Oh, this infighting is really off-putting. Oh, I'm tired of the infighting. But what this word does is completely obscure 
who is doing what to whom. And I think at the heart of this so-called infighting, there is always a political struggle going on, um, which is obscured by this term, which seems to just be a general kind of free for all, that oh, everybody's just all being horrible to each other. And I think um, in my experience, what is seen as infighting, it, there is always, um, there's invariably, I think, an act of a political attempt to silence someone else. There's always a politics at the heart of it. And then a response to that that is all obscured by this term. So anyway, that's why I wanted to draw attention to those words because, um, uh, you know, they're the kinds of words that we see all the time that um, uh, that I use very, um, you know, very casually in that introduction. But they have, um, but they really serve to illustrate what uh, Julia Penelope is talking about in the um, in her analysis of patriarchal language. Okay, can I have the the last slide, please? So, yes, so just to make a bit more of a point about, and I think as much as as um, uh, Penelope, I never really know whether, to, my inclination is to refer to Julia Penelope as Julia because we share the same name, which, which quite delights me, but I will refer to her as Penelope because I think that, that gives her the seriousness uh, that, that she deserves. So, um, so in, uh, uh, as much as Penelope's work on analyzing patriarchal language is known, I think probably the main thing that she is known for is her analysis of agency deletion and the way that it serves male interests, the way that it serves men's interests. So, um, and the famous, well, relatively famous, but certainly it should be famous example of this that she gives is this is this example of how we speak about this I'm gonna have to use the term um, how we uh, how we speak about a certain scenario. We could talk about um let's take a scenario where um Mary is the wife or the intimate partner of a man called John. Now, the, the scenario that we have is that John has beaten Mary. John beat Mary. So we know exactly who the agent of that action is, this man called John. We know exactly what he's done, which is the verb he beat, and we know who the, um, the object of that action the recipient of that action was Mary John beat Mary it's very very clear who's um who's done what to whom now if we want to um shift the emphasis so that we're so we've got John there right at the start of the of the sentence because it's in the active form if we want to shift the the emphasis away from John and put it on to Mary um we can put that into the passive form and say that Mary was beaten by John. So that's the passive form of that of, of, of that verb. So suddenly we're, we're highlighting and foregrounding Mary in that sentence. If we want to really obscure who did what to whom, we can get rid of John altogether and simply say, Mary was beaten. So that way we, it serves John's interest very well. He's nicely, not as he 
simply obscured. He's nicely removed from that altogether. And we are left with this problem of Mary who was beaten. If, now, um, I don't think Mary, um, uh, Penelope actually goes on to to the next the next sentence is the one that I've put in because I think actually this is far more common than any of those first three sentences is that what we hear over and over again Mary is a victim of domestic violence so now we've got this um uh passive uh nom what did I call it I've got now the the nom nominalization we've got the construction of this abstract noun Domestic violence, of course, because it's happened to a woman, it has to be seen as domestic because the language of the interior of um, homes is um, is the language of woman's sort of you know, rightful sphere, which is um, uh, trivial and unimportant compared to the public realm of men. So she is a victim. It's all about her identity. She suddenly now is this particular type of person, a victim and she's a victim of just this abstract noun of domestic violence, which now becomes so instead of instead of um, John's action, which is the issue to be addressed, it is a question of the question of Mary's identity that has to be addressed, the fact that she's this victim. And the problem to be solved is just this very amorphous abstract noun that we can't really pinpoint of domestic violence. And we see this kind of nominalizing of all kinds of, uh, the creation of, um, uh, Julia Penelope has a word for it, the creation of um, of, a, of a topic, of a, of a social problem. So we see it all the time, or we hear it all the time when politicians talk about problems. You know, um, I remember when I worked in, in Ireland, there was, an, there was an organization called the Combat Poverty Agency. So again, like domestic violence, you've got this construction of poverty as this kind of abstract noun. Um, it's, uh, there's the removal of any kind of responsibility. Um, the fact that some people have far more than they need and others have far less than they need, that is the product of human actions. Who dominates the public domain? Men, so it's the product of men's actions, of those men in power, um, it's the product of their decisions and choices. But instead, all of that is removed. And we've just got this idea of this abstract thing of poverty, which has to be um, combated. Um, uh, and we we know that as long as it's phrased in these very um, abstract terms, we're actually never going to address it because we're constantly in a way. It's like we're speaking with stones in our mouths. We, we, we haven't got. Uh, we're we're not able to actually name the um, uh, name what's going on, and so we can't begin to address the problem. And I see that it's almost half past ten, and I haven't actually got on to um, talking about the the over, the outline of the book, the book's content yet. But the um, um, but I did think it was worth drawing attention to um, to some of these um, really the really sort of key aspects of of. Uh, Penelope's analysis, because um, I think it, 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 you know, it's certainly not a dry book of linguistics. It's it, it's such a brilliant and really deeply uh, satisfying read. So I'm going to give um, a broader outline um, of the book to give you a a, a sense of of the huge expanse 
that she covers, she goes right back to the origins of English, goes right back to the fifth century and looks at the origins of English and then comes, you know, right up to the date in the, you know, to the, the time of writing. Um, I'm not going to have time to really sort of do, do justice to all of that, but I will um, try to give you an outline and a, a flavour of the whole book. And then if I've got time, there's a section that I thought I might read through with you because, um, it, again, it really shows the effect of the, um, the agency deletion and the deletion of responsibility that she talks about there. Um, okay, so the book then, Speaking Freely, um, is, is Penelope's analysis of what she calls, uh, of what we would broadly think of as patriarchal language and what she terms as the patriarchal universe of discourse. In her own words, uh, Penelope says, <clears throat> this is a book about how patriarchal thought controls and limits um, the ways the ways we live in the world. An analysis of how the structure of English developed to perpetuate men's descriptions of what our lives are like and what the world is like. I want to understand and live in another world than the, than the one men have made. And I hope other women will join me in its recreation. So her book is very much a political book. It's not just um, an analysis of language, it, you know, it, the way that a, quite a lot of actually, uh, uh, books on it, the English language are um, just like, oh, isn't this fascinating? Oh, look at this interesting sort of variation between, you know, this dialect here and that dialect there. It's very much um, grounded in her um, lesbian feminist and lesbian separatist politics that she wants to live in another world. And she understands that language is um, absolutely crucial to women's liberation, that um, uh, uh, that that um, that sort of uh, project or that uh, you know, movement of liberation. Um, so I think first and foremost, then it starts out as a brilliant linguistic analysis of how the English language functions as a as a as an instrument of men's social power over women. Now, as I say, she coins this term. Um, she uses the abbreviation PUD, the Patriarchal Universe of Discourse, to name this version of reality. Reality in inverted commas. Um, that is created and naturalized by patriarchal language. Now you can see there I'm actually using, once you become aware of it, you see that we use them all the time. I'm using the passive voice there. I'm saying that, it, that this version of reality is created and naturalized by patriarchal language. Well, who creates patriarchal language? It's men. So it's the version of reality that men have created and naturalized through their language. And she, um, she opens the book opens with the old rhyme sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me and I think that's very interesting that she that she opens with that because at the moment I think because of the um transgender assault on women and on um, our language etc and on women generally um and their claims that you know if if we 
in inverted commas, misgender, if we accurately call someone a man, that that is um, doing them literal violence. I think um, that we can be too hasty to dismiss um, the very real effects of language um, in the world to hurt and to oppress. I, now, the, the, um, the fact that um, male activists, transgender activists, men's rights activists misuse that insight to say that us naming them as men is doing them literal violence. I don't think we should let that obscure the fact that language is and it is used as an instrument of oppression. And as Penelope said, words can and do hurt us. I think we have to, um, I think it's, it's really important to be clear about that and not let the misuse of that concept by trans activists uh, kind of get in the way of that. And what um, what Penelope says is that, you know, uh, language is used to restrict and constrain women's freedom and to oppress us. But um, but it's not just words that individual words that do that, that do that. Language is a whole system of rules with words with their semantic content, but also grammar and syntax. The way in which um, the whole system of language is used to constrain our thinking, and it kind of creates certain grooves that we end up thinking within those structures unless we bring them to consciousness and find a way out of them. So that's what she's talking about when she talks about the patriarchal universe of discourse. And she says, um, yeah, English does much more than just hinder and hurt women. It proscribes the boundaries of the lives that we might imagine and will ourselves to live. So it, it and I actually, there's, I won't, I haven't got time to read it now, but um, uh, let me see. Actually, I will read this because um, there are a couple of, of oh is it this quote um i think it's this quote that i've picked out here she um when she talks about the effect of patriarchal language on our consciousness and our um uh the effect on our potential for freedom i was very much reminded of what andrea dawkins says about um about these uh, so-called beauty standards and the ways in which patriarchal beauty standards proscribe and um, constrain women, not just in the sort of physical sense through um, very literal physical um, and painful uh, constraints um, on women's bodies, but also in the terms of women's um, intellectual freedom and creative freedom, uh, you know, all, all of that. I, I don't remember the exact quote, but um, it's such a it's such a brilliant insight. And Julia Penelope says something very similar about um, about the effect of patriarchal language. Um, so she says, our point of view, our perceptions, our consciousness determine and limit how we describe events, objects, and people. PUD, the patriarchal universe of discourse that she goes on to describe in the book, constructs the world as men perceive it. It is a male idealized conceptual framework that defines the boundaries of sense for us, 
um, which statements make sense to us and which statements we describe as nonsense. Um, patriarchal assumptions structure the language we speak um, uh, um, and something I think I've missed a word the the prime the language we speak, which is the the primary and the language language that we have access to is the primary mediator of our experience. Um, the linguistic the linguistic choices we make reveal much about our assumptions. So she's talking about the way in which language um, uh, she's saying like the the way the language we have access to. Um, shapes the way that we think. It's not that we think and then we express it through this language, but it actually shapes the way that we think. And I think that um, it, it's such an important question in terms of the question of women's freedom. Um, that, and I think it, I personally feel that we need to be giving it far more attention than than I think is is really customary at the moment. And something, if I can just um, talk a little bit about my own experience of you know the past few years. I I feel that there is um, such a hunger amongst us to talk about these questions of language and to uh, find a way of analysing. Obviously, Julia Penelope didn't live to see you know the the absolute kind of topsy turvy Alice in Wonderland nature of the absurdities of language that are, you know are being inflicted um, upon us at the moment um, but I feel there is such a hunger amongst women to uh, have this very very um, uh, like to basically kind of clear a path through all of that and to have very clear uh, straightforward language to name what's happening so I think uh, uh, one, uh, on some level, certainly, you know, women still come up to me and say that they really like a YouTube video I, I did with um, the Women's Declaration a few years ago now, where we spoke about, I can't remember, it was myself and uh, Stephanie, um, we spoke about language. And I think it, that really struck a chord with a lot, a, a lot of women. But at the same time that, there is that hunger I've also experienced and probably others of us have as well I've also experienced a real kind of attempt to uh, crush and silence questions of language when we raise them um, and from some of those women who've become very well-known uh, spokeswomen for, for you know gender critical movement I've really experienced this attempt to uh, shut up when I shut up uh, questions of language when I raise them. So I think that's kind of an interesting, and that that's the kind of thing, to go right back to what I was saying before, that's the kind of thing that often gets um, uh, misnamed as infighting, but I think there's a real struggle here about clarity of language. And if some, uh, some people, some women are resistant to that, I think there's definitely some kind of politics at the heart of that. Anyway, um, so to get on to the content of the book, um, so the book is the the, the um, Penelope's analysis of 
the patriarchal universe of discourse is arranged across 11 chapters. And as I said already, it spans several centuries, which I'll try to give a flavor of, and goes across the globe. She she talks mainly about English, but not exclusively. She talks about a number of other languages as well, in terms of the, the ways in which women are oppressed through language. And um, she forensically exposes the ways in which patriarchal language serves the interests of men and subordinates women. So the first couple of chapters, in the first couple of chapters, she examines the uh, questions of the um, exertion of male power through looking at the origins and development of the English language. So th those are really the main kind of historical chapters. Um, in the following chapter, she establishes this, uh, her fundamental concept, the idea of um, PUD, Patri Patriarchal Universe of, of Discourse, and she establishes what she means through that. In chapter, the um, sort of middle chapter of the book, that's a really fascinating chapter where she looks at the, um, the gendering or the sexing of nouns in modern European languages. Um, the, uh, obviously in some languages, uh, the languages that come from uh, ancient Greek and Latin, we've got the sexing of nouns, you know, as, as uh, or the gendering of nouns as masculine and feminine. And, and she looks and we, to a certain extent, we don't have grammatical gender in English, but we have what is what is called um, in linguistics natural gender that we have um, sex terms that relate to biological sex, and she talks about um, the phenomenon of this of, of um, particularly the grammatical gender in really uh, fascinating and quite revealing ways. So then, in the latter half of the book, just. Things jumping around a bit here. In the latter half of the book, um, <clears throat> she analyzes the main linguistic modes um, of patriarchal language that subordinate and marginalize women. And in uh, chapters five to seven, she looks mainly at the question of um, of uh, semantics of the, the meaning content of words um, and how those semantic sets uh, um, serve to elevate men and to um, subordinate women. So for example, one of the um, one of the things that she talks about there is the fact that as soon as any noun becomes associated with women or any any noun that denotes a female or some aspect of um, being female. So words like girl, woman, mother, um, you get a whole um, array of misogynist language that is only um, that there's no equivalent for in terms of um, in terms of 
men. And obviously this is something that we're all very much aware of. So all the kinds of um, horrible misogynist terms associated with being female, such as, um, I don't know, slut, slag, bitch, you know, all of these um, horrible misogynist terms that there is no equivalent for, um, there are no equivalent male terms for those. Um, but not only do we have these semantic sets of misogynist terms, but actually the, the very terms themselves that signify women also um, are used as insults or as um uh sort of as uh, derogatory words so like the word girl is in and of itself an insight or insult is, is used as an insult like like you know throwing like a girl or you know in the school playground or you know even amongst you know i don't know maybe grown men you know this kind of this to to call a man a girl um or a woman is you know is um is in in and of itself an insult without a need for a more um kind of overtly misogynist term and so we can think about that if you know even the the term mother i remember at school if we were you know a group of us girls were stood in the corridor chatting a teacher would go by and say oh what's this a mother's meeting so of course the term mother then becomes this sort of derogatory term or we have uh or we have terms like, you know, old wives tales and things like that. So even these terms which appear to be neutral, such as girl, woman, mother, wife, um, they are used in this kind of negative way to, um, to uh, derogate uh, women. And she talks, I think it's in that chapter, she talks about um, how the most common paradigm of woman is the um the figure of the prostitute that that um the way of talking about women um the most common way of of uh subordinating women is the whole uh, lexicon of language that that refers to women as um as prostitutes and i'm not going to have time to talk about all of this but earlier on she talks about the metaphors of language um am i going to be able to explain this um she talks about the metaphors of language which also serve this so she um she talks about i'm really jumping around all over the place now um she talks about the way that men have developed a metaphor that language as metaphor that language is seen as a container a container of meaning uh, the way that um, meaning is communicated is through this container of language and that women are also seen as containers, as, you know, the endless kind of lexicon of woman as kind of like a hole or a vessel or a sort of recipient of, you know, the male, we know what I'm talking about, don't really want to say it um, uh, um, in a YouTube video, but as, as the recipient of the penis, and the penis is the ultimate um, symbol of male meaning, which is then conveyed into the um, the woman through this uh, endless kind of construction of women as the the, you know, uh, the the container. The word vagina, as Dworkin points out, means sheath. So, um, so what um, Penelope is uh, kind of observing is that men 
actually have constructed the language, the metaphor of the language is the, the same and the, the language itself, it, the metaphor of language is a woman. So woman and language are both, both seen as containers and then kind of going on from that, I don't know, maybe I haven't made this point very um, coherently, but then woman as this container is ultimately seen as um, in the, the figure of the prostitute. That's the, the most common um, sort of semantic set of derogatory terms for women relate, relate to that. I've really jumped around all over the place, but um, I've got far too many notes and I'm not probably going to have time to go back on those metaphors. So that's why I wanted to um, bring that up there. So she talks about in that, as I say, the latter half of the book, she talks about those um, uh, the semantic uh, content of language. And then in the um, towards the end of the book, the last few chapters, she and I, this is where I think it's really fascinating. She talks about um, the more of the syntax of language. So the. Um, the way in which women are um, oppressed and subordinated, not just through the semantic, the meaning content of, of words, but actually through the gra grammatical structure of language. And so syntax refers to um, grammatical structure and word order. So that actually the word order, the very sort of, you know, structures, uh, grammatical structures of our language also serve to um, uh, serve men's interests and serve to um, uh, either elevate men or to render men invisible when it wouldn't be convenient for them to be visible and to absolve men from responsibility. And so this is where she uses these, uh, she does this absolutely brilliant um, analysis of um, uh, the deletion of agency and the um, use of the passive voice, but she uses other features of, of um, grammar as well to show how um, rather than foregrounding men's agency in violating or oppressing or restricting women, that is all very conveniently and very nicely obscured through the grammatical structures that probably all of us tend to use because it's very, very difficult not to, and we use them in probably quite an unconscious way um, much of the time, um, and how this actually um, serves to obscure the actual um, situations that we need to understand uh, clearly if we're going to do anything about them. And she gives a great example of, let me just um, find, she gives a, a really great example of this with, um, yeah, this, um, the technical term is false diaxis, but um, I, won't kind of, I haven't got time to go into the full um, dis description of, of what that is. Um, but what she says is that it, she talks about a particular, um, I don't know if it was a radio or TV, TV program uh, that was on the subject of um, oh, a television documentary on, uh, on 
she called, she uses the term family rape, which which again I'm surprised she uses that term because it's a um, that's a very uh, kind of uh, a term that that clouds what's actually going on. It was um it was a a program called Kids Don't Tell, and it was on the subject of father to child. I think usually uh, girl child um, uh, rape. And she looks at the way in which, and we see this over and over again in terms of TV documentaries. On one hand, these documentaries claim to shed light on an issue that has been that has been hidden, has been or seen as taboo. That they kind of the, the overt message is that they're going to shine a light on these, um, uh, you know, on these uh, terrible, terrible. Um, things that men do but the language that is used repeatedly actually serves to obscure the reality of what's gone on and she what she talks about is is the use of the word it in this um uh, in this documentary so i'll just give you some brief quotes from the documentary to show how the use of the word it veils the actions of the man and what he's done and the effect uh, and the effects of his actions and it actually serves so whilst claiming to um reveal the problem it actually serves to totally obscure it so she gives a um a bit from the dialogue um the uh oh one of one of the child molesters interviewed claimed that he raped his daughter because his wife refused to engage in sex with him. And um, this um, this man reported the following dialogue with his wife. I mean, we'll just ignore for the time being the disgusting uh, argument or assumptions, the, the entitlement that he's making anyway. But he says to his wife, how long has it been? The wife says, has what been? And he says, you know what I mean? So that's already the use of it, where it means here how how long has it how how long has it been since I um, fucked you basically, um, but he uses this term it to obscure um, to obscure what he means. Um, in terms of the interview with the um, with the reporter, the reporter interviews the um, the child. Um, who has been raped by her father, the child says, it started when I was 10. And the reporter says, um, you, by way of kind of um, uh, encouraging the child to say more, like, you'll, you'll get in trouble if you tell anyone about it. Um, and the child says, I thought the kids at, at school could smell it, that they knew what we were doing. So all the time we have this this noun of it. Um, later on, uh, the reporter says to the father rapist, "You must know what you're doing." The father rapist says, "Of course." And the reporter says, "Why does it keep happening?" So anyway, I've kind of rattled through that, but I think we can see that that the ways in which. Um, the act of what the father is doing to the child, what he has been doing to his daughter, um, the violence, the sexual violence that he has been um, 
imposing, enacting upon his daughter is obscured and his agency is obscured by this use of the word it. How long has it been happening and um, how will it stop? As though it is just this abstract problem that's fallen out of the sky and that no one's actually responsible for. Um, we're nearly we're nearly out of time. I'm so sorry. There's so much more to this book, but I hope I've I've whetted your appetite to um, to actually go ahead and read it because there's so much more than we could cover um, in this short space of of the one hour session. But Joe, perhaps are there any um, are there any uh, questions or anything we could have a quick look at or any comments that we could have a quick look at in the last couple of minutes? Well, um, one comment is that from quite a lot of people is, can this be part one and could you do part two and part three soon? I would absolutely love to because I've got all my notes here and I've hardly touched them. So, yeah, maybe I, I think it might be good because the, the book is, is so much in it, maybe to do a, um, a session where she talks about the history of the development of the language and then a session on the current uh, sort of PUD in language that might that might be a good way of doing it yeah that's great and I mean this is the thought from me that I I I I mean I think a few of us have been thinking that these radical feminist perspectives are creating a, a space for us to do what in maths would be thought of as pure maths we're doing the theory the deep theory we're just doing and we're so I'm thinking we're doing pure feminism and you're particularly Julia doing pure feminism it you're really going right to the heart of what words are and the politics of words and power and taking the time to dig really carefully into it and some incredibly important insights come out of that so I suppose I'd like to thank you um for doing what I would say is pure feminism um and I think everybody else really thanks you for that um because you're one of the only one people doing it and Sheila Jeffries is doing it as well but I think together we're doing it creating a community and a space for it and encouraging you to do more thank you can I just say those insights they're not mine at all I've maybe added a few thoughts but they're all from Julia Penelope so if I've if I've excited um, women about her work I'm really really pleased because she really needs to be up there and read absolutely great Okay, see everybody next week. It's Jermaine Greer. We are doing the book Jermaine Greer, The Female Eunuch. So, and maybe see people in breakout rooms. Thanks so much, Julia. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.